This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Colossians chapter 4 this morning as we are going to finish our study of Colossians today. It's been a great joy to walk with you verse by verse through this beautiful, rich letter. And it's, it's just, it's so wonderful how God uses the word to grow us and form us, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I, I get the blessing of just experiencing that week by week and, and digging into the, the word. And I, I just trust that God has, has used this study in your life as well. Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to look this morning as we finish the book at chapter, at verse 2 through the end of the chapter, through verse 18, and, and really it's about vital relationships with, with God, with those who don't yet know Him, and with those who do know Him. So we're going to see all three of those things in this chapter. Let's pick it up, beginning with verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this this letter of the first century that in your providence uh, you ordained to to come down to us in the 21st century. 
Father, we thank you for how your word is, is, is always relevant, that its truth is timeless, and that it speaks to our lives, to our situation today. It's always, it's always fresh. So, Father, we thank you for uh, your precious word. It's a lamp to, to our feet, a light to our, our path. And, Father, we pray that you would use it today to, to bear fruit in us and to bear fruit through us as we're equipped by your word. So, Lord, speak to us now, we ask, in the power of your spirit and for the glory of the name of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. This summer, our family was in D.C., and we, we visited the, the museum, which is a museum devoted to the news. And one of the exhibits that was very interesting to me was, was the Unabomber exhibit, which told the story of, of Ted Kaczynski. This was a case that went on for some 20 years, from the 70s all the way through the the mid-90s, and many of you remember this mysterious individual was leaving package bombs, meticulously crafted, handmade bombs that were left in parking lots or, or mailed to, uh, to, to, to people. And he ended up writing this, this rambling manifesto, which was published in major newspapers and, and which eventually led to his capture. And what was fascinating about this exhibit was that the the cabin that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, lived in in this remote forest in Montana was actually a part of this exhibit. And it was very telling because when you looked at this crude, dirty, tiny cabin that this man was, was holed up in for two-plus decades, you, you could really see that he had lost all contact. Every relationship was severed. I mean, this disturbed individual had grown more and more inward, just, just utterly devoid of any kind of, of, of meaningful relationship. You know, as human beings, we're made for relationships. When God says in Genesis 2.18 that it's not good that the man should be alone, the application really should not be restricted to marriage. It's not God's will for, for all of us to be married, but it is His will for us to be healthy in the three relationships that we're going to talk about today. Vital relationships. First of all, our relationship with Him, relating to God through prayer. That's what Paul is talking about in verses 2 through 4. Look at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer is serious business, especially when, when you consider the truth of James 4.2, which says, you do not have because you do not ask. Sam Storms says this, if we fail to pray, we most likely will not receive. It is utterly presumptuous to think that God will do for us, apart from prayer, what He has promised to do for us only through prayer. Now, prayer, is, prayer, is, prayer is serious business. So we, 
the Bible says we, we have not because we ask not. And so Paul is saying here in verse 2 that there are certain things that should characterize our prayer life. And the first is steadfastness. He says here in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. This means that there should be um, a persistence to our prayers, that we should not give up in our prayers. Now, Jesus considered this aspect of prayer, uh, persistence in prayer, steadfastness in prayer, to be so important that he devoted two of his stories, two of his parables to this very subject. One is in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The, the door is now Shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up to give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, Jesus, in this parable, is not comparing God to the grumpy, groggy friend who doesn't want to get out of bed and give his neighbor three loaves of bread. Jesus is contrasting God. With that friend. And he's saying that, you know, even if this, this grumpy, half asleep neighbor will respond to persistence at his door, how much more will a loving father who never slumbers or sleeps respond to your persistence in prayer, which is exactly the point that Jesus makes. As he goes on here, he says, What father among you, if the son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If if even imperfect, sinful parents like us... (laughs) delight in giving good gifts to our children, then how much more does our Heavenly Father, who's, who is without sin and whose love is perfect, how much more does He, he delight in giving to His children and, and responding to our persistence in prayer? And then in the 18th chapter of Luke, Jesus tells another parable which again makes this point about steadfastness in prayer, persistence in prayer. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. 
For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, once again, Jesus is not comparing God with this hard-hearted, corrupt judge. Jesus is contrasting God with this judge. And he's saying that if if even a, a, a scummy guy like this judge will respond to someone's persistence, well, then how much more will your loving Father respond to you? Which, again, is the point that Jesus is making as he continues here. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them, I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? If Christ were to return today, and He he could, would He find us faithful and steadfast and persistent in our prayers? Or would He find us giving up, losing heart in our prayers. We're we're to be steadfast in our prayers. Continue, he says in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. And then what else? Being watchful in it. We're to be watchful in our prayers. Listen, 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have a supernatural enemy who is is seeking our destruction. Well, that being the case, how much more should we stay in close contact with our supernatural friend who is so much more powerful, infinitely more powerful than our supernatural enemy? We should be watchful and stay in close contact with the Lord through prayer because the world, the flesh, and the devil are after us. And so we don't want to drift in our relationship with the Lord. We want to stay close to Him through prayer and be be watchful and, and, and spiritually alert. And then what else does He say here about it in, in verse 2? He says that we're to be thankful as we pray. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with what? With thanksgiving. Now, usually, when we we think of thanksgiving, we think about something that we do on the back end of our prayers, right? After God has has answered. But, But here, Paul is saying that we should also be thankful on the front end of our prayers. Even as we make our request to God, we should do so with thanksgiving, which is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, as we make our request to the Lord, what are some of the things that we should be thankful for? Well, first of all, 
we should be thankful for His presence. We should be thankful that, that, that as we're praying, that we're not talking into the air, that we are talking to a living God. We should be thankful for His presence. We should be thankful for His promise. The promise that, that He hears our prayers and that He answers our prayers. We should be thankful for His pardon. Thankful for the fact that our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Uh, thankful for the fact that as we are approaching God, we're not doing so in our own merit, in our own righteousness, but we're approaching Him in the merit and in the righteousness of our Savior because His perfect righteousness has been credited to us. And so we're thankful for His pardon. We, we should be thankful for His power as we pray. That We're praying to a sovereign God who's in control, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, and who is uh, able and willing uh, to answer our prayers, and then be thankful for His purpose, that even when we don't know exactly how to pray, that Romans 8.28 says that, that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. So we pray with, with thanksgiving for, for, for all of these things, even on the front end of our prayers. Now, what Paul's going to do in verses 3 and 4 is ask the Colossians to, to pray for him. And specifically, what he's asking for is that they would pray for his witness to others, which is where he's going to head next. Relating to non-Christians through our witness. And we see that in, in, in verses 5 and 6. In, in a few moments, we're going to talk about relating to, to Christians through fellowship, which is vital, but it's, it's also vital for the health of our Christian lives that we be relating to non-Christians, to those who are still on the outside looking in as far as Christianity is concerned. You know, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so therefore, if we're, if we're not Fishing for, for people, if we're not involved with trying to, to help men and women and boys and girls come to Christ, we have to question how closely we're really following the Lord. Because when we're following Him closely, uh, we're going to be in the fishing business. We're going to care about other people and helping other people come to know Jesus. Well, in verses 5 and 6, He, he tells us about some, some ways that will help us in doing that. Let's look at, at verse 5. He says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And, and the meaning here is that time is short for all of us. We get one brief life to make a difference. And after all, why has God left us on this earth? Why doesn't He just take us immediately to be with Him the day that He saves us? He, he leaves us here so that we can, can help other people come to know Him. And the time that we have for doing that is limited. Psalm 90 and verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days, 
that we may get a heart of wisdom. Um, And so we need to ask ourselves, how intentional are we about making time in our lives to build relationships to those who are still on the outside looking in as far as Christianity? Uh, When was the last conversation? What was the last conversation that we had with someone who is, is not yet in Christ? The last time that we shared a cup of coffee with them, the last time that we shared a, 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 a meal with, with someone or did something intentional to spend time with them to begin talking with them about the Savior. And, and it's important to remember, too, that it's not just an individual application. That this letter is written to a church. Churches like ours need to be very intentional in in, in everything that we do and and the use of of all of our our resources and programming and everything else that, that we remember that it's about making disciples. And then in verse 6, he he tells about the actual uh, conversations, talking with people that don't yet no Christ. Let's look at verse 6. He says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is such a wonderful verse, such a helpful verse uh, to, to know when we're, we're, we're talking with people who don't yet know Jesus. And, and we see really three principles here in verse 6 for, for, do, for doing that. Three keys and talking with non-Christians about Christ, first of all, be gracious. Paul says here, let your speech always be gracious. When we're talking with people about Christ, we should make every effort to be cordial. And listen, if they get, if they get angry with us because the gospel is offensive to them, well, that's not something that we can control. But if we don't control ourselves and we get angry with them, then, then, then shame on us. Um, we don't want to get angry with, with lost people because they're lost and because they see things the way that lost people see things. Their worldview is going to be very different. Their feelings and values on all kinds of things are going to be different and, 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 and confused. And we have to remind ourselves, there but for the grace of God go I. Were it not for God's grace, I would be living in that kind of, of confusion. And so let, let's, let's not, let's not uh, get angry with, with lost people because they're lost. But let's, let's never be rude, never be uh, condescending, um, because listen, you can win an argument and lose a person. You can win an argument and lose a person. It's not the idea. We want to win people, right? Be gracious. Be gracious. Second, be stimulating. He says here that our speech should be seasoned with salt. So what does salt do to us? Go, go have a pizza for lunch and you'll find out. For the rest of the afternoon, right? It make, when you eat something salty, it, it, makes, you, it makes you thirsty. And, and what he's saying here is that as believers, 
there should be something about our life and something about even the way that we speak of the Lord that is attractive and stimulating. Howard Hendricks, the uh, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, uh, used to say, you know, there's an old adage, you can, you can lead a horse to water, but you, can't, but you can't make him drink. And that's true, but you can feed him salt. <laughs> you know, and that stimulates thirst. Uh, Sam Storms again says, do you talk of Jesus? in a way that makes people's mouths water? Do your words and manner create the opportunity for a spiritual thirst to emerge? The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do people see and sense the sweetness of the Savior when we speak of Him? And then third, be informed. What else does he say in verse 6? He says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Listen, if we're going to share the Christian faith and defend the Christian faith, then we need to know the Christian faith. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. A great resource on this that I've read recently, I would highly commend this to you, is Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, which is just a a very... A down-to-earth guide about engaging with conversations and people, with people who don't yet know Jesus in a, in a way that's it's, it's easy, it's not threatening. I, I would just really commend this to you if you're interested in sharing your faith, and that should be all of us should be interested in in that. Um, and so we want to be informed in our witness. Well, he talks about relating to God through prayer, uh, relating to non-Christians through our witness, and then third, relating to Christians through fellowship. From verse 7 through the end of the chapter, Paul is mentioning a bunch of people. He's sending greetings to people. He's sending greetings from people. And in the process, we really get a fascinating picture of what the early church was like. There are three things I think that we can learn from this, this list that he gives from verse 7 through the end of the chapter. First of all, as a church, we should be a culture of encouragement. It, when you look throughout this list of people from verse 7 on, uh, let, let's look at it. L- look, at the, look at the culture of affirmation and, and encouragement that that Paul is, is, is creating here. He speaks in verse 7 of Tychicus as a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant. And then he talks in, in, in verse 9 about Onesimus, our, our faithful and beloved brother. And then in, in verses 10 and following, he talks about the Aristarchus and uh, and, and, and Mark, and, and, and Justice. And he says in verse 11 that all of these men have been a comfort to me. And then in verse 12, he talks about Epaphras, who he refers to as a servant of Christ Jesus. And he tells them, Epaphras is, is constantly struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He loves you guys. He's praying for you. And then in, verses, in, uh, in verse uh, 14, he talks about Luke, the beloved 
physician. And then in verse 15, he talks about Nympha and the church in her house, which again tells us about the very important strategic place of, of women in the advance of the gospel. This woman, Nympha, uh, had opened up her home for people to, to, to worship there, and, and Paul is, is commending her for, for, for that. And so what, what you see when you look at the totality of this list is just this, this culture of encouragement. And of course, a culture of encouragement is created by a bunch of individual people in the church who are themselves encouragers, right? Make it your goal to be an encourager, to, to warmly affirm people so that the, you know, the church just uh, pulsates with that, that kind of, of, of love and, and encouragement. So be a culture of encouragement. Second, be humble servants. Does that, does that not come through from this list? I mean, one of the things that stands out to me as I read this list is that nobody's a superstar, you know, they're just humble servants, people playing different roles, uh, doing uh, different uh, parts for the advance of, of the gospel. None of these people weren't, they weren't famous. They weren't seeking to be famous. I mean, they were just humble brothers and sisters um, serving the Lord. I mean, sometimes in evangelicalism, we, we can kind of get into this thing where we sort of become like the world and just sort of glorifying celebrity and fame. That, that's what the culture is into, right? Celebrity, uh, superstardom. And if we're not careful in, in the church, we can, we can kind of get into that as well and create our own uh, Christian superstars. And it's almost like we can, we can give the impression that a best-selling author or, you know, a megachurch pastor or this well-known Christian person or that is sort of more important to God's kingdom or in better standing with the Lord than the, the housewife who is humbly serving little ones in the home or the pastor of a church in rural Mississippi who has less than 100 people in his congregation. The people that God commends are humble servants. And that's who Paul is commending here. No, nobody, nobody was a, a superstar. It was just a, it was just a, a bunch of, of, of people just, just humbly serving the Lord and seeking to exalt the name of Christ. And then be a team. Be a team. Does that not come through from this list? You know, as Americans... We're very independent. <laughs> That's just part part of our culture, sort of a rugged individualism and and and, and independence, and, and and some of that can can be can be useful and, and good. But listen, in the church, we're we're meant to be interdependent. We're meant to be a team. The Bible says that we belong to one another. Don't you see that? In this list, these people, these people have a, a communion with one another and with the Lord, which is one of the things that we see in, in the Lord's table, isn't it? Our, our communion with Him, our communion with, with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, serving together in, in, in the same family of, of, of God. That's, 
That's what we see here. And then in, in the last verse of the letter, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. In other words, at this point, Paul stops dictating the letter to an amanuensis, and he himself picks up the pen, and he writes this last line himself with his own hand, and he says to them poignantly, remember my chains. Where's Paul writing from? In prison, right? It's in prison as he writes this. But, but yet, as we've walked through these four chapters of Colossians, do we sense that Paul is, is he downcast? Is he, is he morose in, in any way? No. He's filled with joy. He's filled with, 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 with peace. It's just a, a sense of, 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 of confidence in, in God and hope in God that just, that just surges through the whole letter despite his chains. And there's a reason for that. Paul could, could live with that kind of, of abandon for the Lord despite his circumstances, despite the fact that he's in chains. He, he could live with this kind of surrender and abandonment because of what Christ had already done for him. Because, you see, Christ had already been chained and beaten and tortured and killed. And Paul himself was one day going to be uh, martyred for, for Christ, but, but he could say, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, because Jesus had already gone before. And therefore, he could be all out for Christ, and he could give his very life for Christ, with a, with even, even with a, a sense of, of, of joy and confidence because of the work of the Savior, because of what Christ had already been through for Him. And we remember what Christ has done for us now as we, we take part in this supper together. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for what Christ has done for us. We thank You that You gave us this ordinance which, which brings us back to the centrality of the gospel. It just placards it before our eyes, what, what it's all about, what Jesus has done for us. And so, Father, as we take part in it today, we pray that you would use it to, to nourish our souls, that you would use it to, to deepen our love for Christ. We pray for your spirit to be with us now as we take part in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. 
It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.